0: Welcome to the Exploress, the Halloween edition. Time traveling through history, one era at a time. I'm Kate Armstrong. Hello, listener. Close your eyes, won't you, and let's pretend it's still October. Imagine Thriller playing in the grocery store and the leaves outside in all the colors of fire. You've got your warm cider, you've carved your pumpkin, and you're ready for a little haunting women's history. Grab your fishnets and your favorite pistol. Let's go traveling. (laughs) A woman walks down an echoing hall of a prison. To either side, girls grip the bars, some looking resigned, others desperate. But the woman doesn't stop until she gets to a particular cell. Inside it, another woman bats her wide, beautiful eyes at reporters, her auburn hair shining out against the prison's dark walls. Bulbs flash as men take her picture. They all lean toward her like moths to a flame. But the new arrival hangs back, jaded and wary. It's clear to Maureen Watkins that this woman is guilty of the crime she's been accused of. So why are these journalists hanging on her every word? Maureen isn't about to let this murderess charm her. She is going to show the world what she really is. But in reporting her trial, Maureen will immortalize Beulah Anan and the accused murderesses in the cells all around her. She will turn them into some of the 1920s' biggest stars. Settle in for a tale of passion, jealousy, corruption, and the lady-killers who entranced 1920s America. But first, a shout-out to some of my patrons. My newest pirate queen, Lisa. My warrior queens, Sarah, Kiana, two lovely Alexises, Amanda, Kate, Ika, June, Neve, and Sloan, and Samantha. My Imperial Empresses, Bridget, Faye and Whimsy Soapworks, Katie, Samara, and Teresa. And my Lady Pharaohs, Laura, Sophie, Kat, Cheryl, Kate, and the fabulous Courtney's. This show just wouldn't be possible without the generous support of all my patrons. For just a few dollars a month, they get each episode early and completely ad-free. Exclusive bonus episodes you won't find anywhere else discounts on Explorers merchandise and art, full interviews with guests, and more. To find out all about it, just go to my website, theexplorerspodcast.com. <laughs> we have arrived in 1920 Chicago. Maureen Watkins has just arrived as well, and she's looking for a job. Maureen isn't from the city. She was raised in a quiet town by her minister father and grew up loving her Bible. She wanted to go to school to study Greek, the language of the New Testament, but she enjoyed writing too. In a playwriting workshop, a professor told her that if she wanted to be great at it, she needed to go and do some living. So she packed up and moved to the debauched, violent, exciting city of Chicago. Maureen snags herself a job at the Tribune, the city's biggest paper. The Tribune is big news. By the early 1920s, its daily circulation was over 500,000 and 800,000 on Sundays. It is also one of the only papers of note during the Prohibition era that gives women the same opportunities as men. While the Associated Press and New York managing editors are turning down female applicants, the Tribune is boasting about its female staff. The paper is keen to attract female readers and the ad men who want to sell them things. As one of its advertisements
1: notes, Countless Mrs. Smiths get a particular enjoyment.
0: From news stories written by women,
1: as seen with a woman's eyes and with a woman's supersensitiveness to truth.
0: Almost all of these women in newsrooms write for the society pages.
1: They give advice to the lovelorn,
0: said one New York Times reporter.
1: They edit household departments. Clubs, cooking, and clothes are recognized as subjects particularly fitting to their intelligence.
0: Others write stories of personal tragedy. These so-called Sob Sisters are sent to cover trials in ways meant to elicit emotion, rather than sticking strictly to the facts. Although they often cover violent crime, or more precisely, its courtroom aftermath, the Sob Sisters' work reinforces prevailing newsroom notions about women's inability to write factually and without undue sentiment.
1: On the big story, her vision is apt to be too close and her factual grasp inadequate
0: one New York Herald Tribune reporter said.
1: They can't depend on the variable feminine mechanism.
0: Rude. But somebody has to cover the female crime phenomenon that's currently sweeping Chicago. Murder, it seems, is definitely in the air. The number of killings committed by women has jumped 400% in just 40 years, making up 10% of the total murder count. Husbands and lovers are turning up dead in droves. Male journalists resent having to cover girl bandits and murderesses, but female journalists are happy to step into the fray. These mob sisters are the antithesis of sisters. They report on violence, corrupt government officials, and mobsters in ways that are cynical, bemused, witty, scornful, even jaded. But as exciting as the job can be, it's also confronting.
2: I would rather see my daughter starve,
0: one editor said,
2: than that she should ever had heard or seen what the women on my staff have been compelled to hear and see.
0: Case in point, the Tribune's first mob sister collapses in the newsroom after interviewing a woman whose son attempted to kill her. A week spent in morals court listening to prostitution crimes made her physically sick. By the time she called it quits, she weighed just 98 pounds from all the stress of it. Enter Maureen Watkins, small, unassuming, beautiful, respectable, pragmatic. Maureen doesn't bob her hair or display her knees. She also isn't easily shaken, and she likes her new city's slightly dangerous edge. Gunmen are just divine, Maureen took to saying.
3: They have such lovely, quaint, old-fashioned ideas about women being on pedestals. My idea of something pleasant is to be surrounded by gunmen.
0: Their matter-of-fact attitude towards violence is awful, and she knows it, but there is something in Maureen that finds them immensely thrilling. And though she sticks closely to her religious upbringing, she's hungry to cover some of the city's worst crimes. As she tells her readers,
3: Being a conscientious person, I never prayed for a murder, but I hoped that if there was one, I'd be assigned to it.
0: She's been working at the Tribune for just over a month when a new and intriguing report comes in. In the wee hours of March 12th, 1924, two policemen were walking their beat in the streets of Chicago when they passed a woman getting out of an idling car. They didn't think much of it, passing on down the street, until they heard a shot ring out through the darkness. When they ran back to the car, they found a bottle of gin, a used pistol, and a recently dead man. An hour later, police knocked on the door of one Mrs. Belva Gertner. The cabaret singer was in her robe, looking shaken. Nearby lay her expensive fur coat, now blood-soaked, and a broken watch, which had stopped at 1.15 a.m. A man has been found dead, they told her. In your car, Mrs. Gertner. What did she have to say about it?
4: I don't know. I was drunk.
0: Belva is still drunk when they set out for the police station. She tells officers there that she and Walter Law had been seeing each other for a couple of months and that his wife didn't really mind it. She said that around midnight, they were saying goodbye when a gunshot came from somewhere. She thought it might have been a stick-up man. She got scared, and so she ran. But Belva does admit that she and Walter had been fighting. She danced with another man that night, you see.
4: I was frightened, she told them. Last Sunday night when he took me home, he wouldn't talk to me all the way home. Just sneered and said, I ever see you with anybody else, I'll wring your
0: neck. Maureen stands, listening to a tearful Belva working a crowd of policemen and reporters. Did you shoot Law? The assistant state's attorney asks her.
4: I don't see how I could.
0: Belva replies.
4: I thought so much of him.
0: At last, one of the journalists recognizes her. Isn't she Belle Gertner, the popular cabaret dancer whose violent divorce caused such a stir a while back? In 1911, she married William Gertner, a wealthy and respected businessman. But her drinking, cheating, and general wildness soon had William wondering if perhaps he'd made a mistake. Things got so bad between them, he called the cops, saying he would file for divorce and citing cruelty. Things got so dramatic, they ended up all over the papers. And here the woman is again, but this time accused of murder. But when Frida Law, the victim's wife, shows up, she refuses to believe it. I do not believe she killed him. The bullet that caused his death came from the outside and probably never was meant for
5: him. Walter was devoted to me. I never suspected him of doing anything
0: that might give me cause to be jealous,
5: and I don't suspect him now.
0: The morning after the arrest, sober and rested, Belva starts shifting her story, trying to push herself out of the frame.
4: I tell you, I can't recall what happened.
0: She repeats for reporters and police.
4: Somebody must have shot him, but I can't remember how it was done.
0: There is something about her, a gravitas, a charm, that makes her an entrancing subject. It helps that she smokes and powders her nose for her admirers. She even drops quippy, perfect pull quotes like,
4: I think I can get my coat cleaned. So it will look all right again.
0: At Belva's inquest, police testimony builds a pretty damning picture. The manager of the Gingham Inn testifies that Walter and Belva had been there together, drinking. The coroner testifies that Walter got a bullet through his right cheek, which exited through his left ear. One shot had been fired from the pistol left in the vehicle. It looks like murder, pure and simple, and Belva is sitting pretty in the middle of the frame. A co-worker of Walter's goes on to say that,
2: Walter told me Monday that he planned to take out more life insurance because Miss Gardner threatened to kill him. In a joking way, he said that he was afraid Miss Gardner might shoot him. Three weeks before, he told me she locked him in her flat with her and threatened to stab him with a knife unless he stayed there.
0: The coroner's jury pronounces Belva guilty. Her case will be moving to grand jury and trial. After the inquest, Belva and Frida Law answer questions just a few feet from one another. Awkward, Frida says. At first, I felt rather sorry for that other woman because she was guilty of killing everything. But did you
5: see her come in? She was almost giggling. Oh, I never knew I could
0: hate someone so much. Belva is moved to Cook County Jail to await her trial. Her ex-husband, William Gertner, apparently a sucker for punishment, hires the best defense attorney in Chicago and brings her stylish clothes to wear. But Maureen is not impressed. This deeply cynical mob sister writes stories with a tongue-in-cheek tone and oozing sarcasm, which aim to reveal her murderous subject in the worst possible light.
3: The latest alleged lady murderess of Cook County, in whose car young law was found shot to death as a finale to three months of wild gin parties with Belva, while his wife sat at home unsuspecting, isn't a bit worried about the case. Why, it's silly to say I murdered Walter, she said during a lengthy discourse on love, gin, guns, sweeties, wives and husbands. I liked him, and he loved me, but no woman can love a man enough to kill him. They aren't worth it, because there are always plenty more. Walter was just a kid, 29, and I'm 38. Why should I have worried whether he loved me or whether he left
0: me? Maureen details what she thinks will condemn the woman in the public's mind. Her laughter during the inquest, her frivolity, her utter lack of concern as Mrs. Law planned her husband's funeral. She printed every one of her outrageous quips.
4: Now that coroner's jury that held me for murder, that was bum. They were narrow-minded old birds, but they never heard a jazz band in their lives. Now if I'm tried, I want worldly men, broad-minded men, men who know what it is to get out of bit. Why, no one like that would convict me.
0: Belva's story is big news. Everyone in America wants to hear all about this accused murderess. But very soon, another, much more glamorous woman will join Belva on what's called Murderous Row, and she is going to steal the spotlight. Beulah Ainen was from Louisville, Kentucky. Married in her teens, with a son on her hip, she soon chafed against the constraints of the domestic life. So she started having affairs, and her husband wasn't best pleased about it. You never have showed that you are capable of resisting temptation, he wrote, telling her to leave town for the sake of their child. Soon, Beulah does just that, marrying again and moving with her man to Chicago. She was all that I thought a woman could be, her second husband said later. I gave her every cent I made. Beulah worked at Tenant's Laundry, mostly because she got bored alone at home. Her husband, Al, was always out working. He never wanted to take her out on the town dancing, and she wasn't afraid to find someone who would. At 5 p.m. on April 3rd, 1924, Beulah calls her husband at work in a panic. Come home, she says down the line.
5: I've shot a man. He's been trying to make love to me.
0: When Al gets home, he finds his wife drunk, a jazz record playing, and a bloody body on the floor. When the police finally come, he tries to tell them that he shot the man, but Belva confesses.
5: I told him I would shoot, she says. He kept coming toward me anyway, so there was nothing else for me to do but shoot him.
0: In the back, one of the officers asks, clearly dubious, Beulah chooses that moment to faint. They take her down to the station, where they continue to press her over the incident. No one believes that it was self-defense. But everyone is intrigued by this beautiful woman with blue eyes and auburn curls, wearing a deliciously low-cut nightdress. How could such a delicate, pretty thing possibly kill a man? Eventually, they take her back to their apartment to change clothes, hoping the sight of the blood on her carpet will shake the truth from her. Why are there so many wine bottles and empty glasses here if you didn't invite the man in, they ask her. Why was he shot in the back if he rushed at you? It's clear the man was dead for hours before you called us. Why is it that you waited so long?
5: You're right,
0: she says at last.
5: I haven't been telling the truth. I'd been fooling around with Harry for two months.
0: It turns out that Harry Coltsted was her coworker and her lover. She tells Police he'd come by her place around lunchtime, and they'd gotten drunk together as they listened to her favorite record, Hula Loo. But soon, they started fighting. She accused Harry of lying about having money to spend on her and of seeing other women. She told him she was seeing another man too, hoping to spur on a jealous rage. It seems to have worked. Things heated up quickly. There was a moment when she and Harry both looked toward the bedroom where Al's gun was safely stored.
5: Then you say he jumped up?
0: The police pressed her.
5: I was ahead of him. I grabbed for the gun. And what did he grab for? For what was left, nothing. Did he get his coat and hat? No, he didn't get that far. Why didn't he get that far? Darned good reason. What was it? I shot him.
0: This so-called midnight confession is soon all anyone can talk about, and Beulah just won't stop talking from her cell, saying things like, I didn't
5: love Harry so much, but he brought me wine and made a fuss over me and thought I was pretty. I don't think I ever loved anybody very much. You know how it is. You keep looking and looking all the time for somebody you can really
0: love. Meanwhile, her husband Al is only steps away as she says this. He tells reporters, I've been a sucker, that's all. Simply a meal ticket. I guess I was too slow for her. I don't get any kick out of cabarets, dancing, and rotten liquor. I like quiet home life. Beulah wanted excitement all the time. Still, clearly besotted with her, he tries to come up with the money for lawyers to defend his wife. I haven't much money, but I'll spend my last dime in helping Beulah. I'll stick to the finish. At Beulah's inquest, a new, even more scandalous picture emerges. We find out that Beulah called Tennant's Laundry at 4.10 p.m. that day, asking for Harry, even though he was clearly already dead. When the coroner arrived at 6.20 p.m., Harry had only been dead about 30 minutes. Beulah had hours in which she could have called for help and didn't. Instead, she danced along to hula Lou as Harry lay dying.
1: She danced to the tune of jazz records, a passionate death dance with the body of the man she had shot and killed.
0: One paper wrote. Maureen wrote.
3: "Hula Lou was the death song of Harry Colt's 29 years old, of 808. East 49th Street, who Miss Amman shot because he had terminated their little wine party by announcing he was through with her.
0: It's decided that Beulah's case will go to trial. When she arrives at Murderess Row, the seriousness of her predicament seems to finally hit home with her. But the woman in the cell next door doesn't understand why she's so worried. You pretty pretty, Sabella Needy tells her. You speak English. They won't kill you. Why you cry? It turns out that Beulah and Belva aren't the only women on Murderess Row. Far from it. Almost a year before they arrived there, Sabella Needy was sentenced to hang for supposedly killing her husband. This 40-something Italian immigrant reported her husband, Frank, missing, along with their family's $300 in savings. With so many children to tend, she couldn't wait for him to return home to her. So Sabella married again, a man named Peter Crudell. Two months after that, police found a badly decomposing body in a sewer catch basin. It was identified as Frank Niddy. Sabella and her 15 year old son, Charlie, were brought in for questioning. Under hours of heavy interrogation, Charlie finally cracked. He says Peter Crudell murdered his father on Sabella's order, and then he and Crudell disposed of the body. Speaking almost no English, Sabella understood none of what her son told the policeman. She just nodded along, trusting whatever he said was the truth. Her trial and its coverage was hugely unfair to Sabella. Her lawyer, Eugene Moran, was so grossly incompetent that the judge warned him several times that he was actively harming his client. He would later be declared mentally ill. Even if he'd been fit to do his job, he didn't speak a word of Sibella's language. He had no way of communicating with her about anything. Imagine being Sibella, sitting through your trial, unable to follow any of the proceedings, watching as a bunch of men decided your fate. The press was merciless and cruel, calling her greasy, dirty, even animalistic.
2: A horrible-looking creature she was, one wrote, with skin like elephant hide, Nails split to the quick and the dirt and grain deep in the cracks of her hands.
0: Sabella's coverage shocked her fellow inmates, who wrote to the papers to say that she was one of the cleanest women in the department, in her cell and her personal appearance. But their words fell on deaf ears. On May 25, 1923, the state indicted Sibella, Peter, and Charlie for murder. 102 husband killers were tried in Cook County between 1875 and 1920. 16 were convicted. None got the death penalty. And after seeing some 29 girl gunner acquittals in a row, the state's lawmen were starting to get itchy. They were frankly embarrassed that 90% of women tried for murder were walking free in their state. Why not make an example of Zabella, an immigrant who could not speak for herself? Sabella's death sentence made her a national celebrity. The LA Times wrote, For the first time in the history of Illinois, a woman has been given the death penalty for murder. No one wrote the kinds of things about her that they would go on to say about Beulah and Belva. She was no glamorous, tragic, seductive beauty. She was older, an immigrant, and poor. One of the Tribune's articles about her sums up the xenophobic, frankly horrifying attitude of the time. Twelve jurors branded Mrs. Sabelle Needy husband killer and established a precedent for the state of Illinois at three o'clock yesterday afternoon by giving the death penalty to the dumb, crouching, animal-like Italian peasant, a cruel, dirty, repulsive woman. Thankfully, Helen Cerise was on the case. She and five other young Italian lawyers decided to take on Sabella's appeal pro bono. Born to Italian immigrants herself, Helen became the youngest woman to pass the Illinois bar exam, 10 months before her 21st birthday. Get it, Helen? But none of the city's law firms would hire her. Women make
2: good law students,
0: one male attorney said at the time.
2: They can pass the examinations, including the bar examinations, with honors and flying colors but conditions are such that they do not seem to be equipped for the actual knockdown and drag-out fight required in the actual trial of lawsuits.
0: Helen begged to differ, and she was sure of Sabella's innocence. So she appealed her case, and the court agreed to hear a motion to set aside the verdict. Sabella's defense team planned to argue that her attorney had been incompetent, that Sabella could not understand him, that the evidence was suspect, that Charlie's testimony was coerced, and that the motive was shoddy. Her conviction was clearly about ethnic and class biases, not justice. And when Helen and Sibella saw Belva and Beulah swan into their jail, clearly guilty, but also glamorous, they highlighted an uncomfortable truth pretty women could get away with anything, including murder. As Sibella herself said, nice face, swell clothes, shoot, man, go home. <laughs> Another of the less fortunate inmates on Murderess Row was 19-year-old Kitty Malm. In the weeks before Belva and Beulah were arrested, she was sentenced to life in prison for her crime. As a teenager, she quit school to become a factory girl. At some point, she married a man named Max and had a daughter with him. But both married life and her meager paycheck didn't seem to work out for her. In November, 1923, She and her boyfriend, Otto, tried to rob a factory and ended up killing a security guard. Otto swiftly confessed. After all, he had a rap sheet as long as his arm. Otto said he was the one who killed the guard and accidentally shot Kitty in the process. To show her devotion, Kitty tried to commit suicide in her cell.
5: You can now
1: tell them that I've done the shooting, so they will let you go take care of baby forever.
0: She wrote to him in her final note
1: but please quit the racket and raise Tootsie in an honest way for your departed mama's sake.
0: Days later, Otto changed his story. Now Kitty had shot the guard. She was confident at first that she wouldn't be hung for it. After all, all male juries were averse to punishing women.
5: Hang me? <laughs> That's a joke.
0: She told reporters.
5: Say, nobody in the world would hang a girl for being in an alley with a guy who pulls a gun and shoots.
0: But Kitty isn't like the white lady gunmen who had been acquitted before her. They'd all been society ladies, all of them pretty. Kitty was both poor and uneducated. She'd stare right into a man's eyes. Her language was vulgar. The reporters didn't like her at all. So when an ex-friend outright lied, claiming Kitty kept two guns strapped to her hips at all times, the papers were all over it. They write the Kitty, carried a gun where most girls hide their love letters. It caused a sensation and let the state frame Kitty as a quote-unquote hard woman. Reporters called her the dangerous wolf woman and the ferocious tiger girl. In February 1924, a jury found her guilty of murder. To add insult to injury, Kitty received a divorce summons from her legal husband. He even claimed their two-year-old daughter, Tootsie, wasn't his. Kitty and Belva bonded over men while playing cards in prison. Men are quitters, Kitty told Belva.
1: They're long on talk, but Lord, when it comes to the showdown, they're yellow.
0: Belva and Beulah are starting to get a little nervous about their court cases. Sibella's conviction may have broken the streak of acquittals against lady killers, but Kitty's drives home the fact that men are no longer scared of convicting them. And that isn't all. On May 7th, a jury convicts Elizabeth Unkoffer of killing her lover and sentences her to life in prison. Before that, Mary Wesenak was convicted of manslaughter for serving poisonous whiskey. It's worrying, certainly, but one thing is clear. Beauty, glamour, a good lawyer, and the press corps are the keys to getting free. Beulah's defense team decide they will present her as a virtuous working girl caught up in a rage and lean hard on the fact that Harry had a criminal record. Turns out he spent five years in a Minnesota prison for assaulting a woman. Way to pick a winner there, Beulah. Her story changes, too, as does her attitude toward her cuckolded husband.
5: It must have been a blow for him to discover what had been going on behind his
0: back. She said, her large eyes filling with tears. She tells reporters what they want to hear, that she feels ashamed.
5: I suppose it is true that a man may drift into any woman's life at some time and overpower one with his personality. Before you know it, without any intention to misstep, you find yourself completely engulfed. That was the way it was with Harry. That's largely the trouble that brings most of the women in here. They fall in love with the wrong man.
0: Many of the papers turn Beulah's story into an epic tragedy. A heartrending modern love story. Beulah had been lured into the world of jazz and booze and had broken her marriage vows. She was a fallen woman, but she could still be saved. Her story was way bigger than Belva's or Kitty's or Sibella's. Newspapers sold out on Friday and Saturday when her face was on the front page. She poses for photographers at every opportunity. Receives food and roses from anonymous admirers and even gets love letters from men all across the country. And then, a day after Unkoffer's conviction, Beulah gathers the press and delivers them a bombshell. She says that she's pregnant. She tells them that Harry attacked her after she told him she was carrying her husband's child. The press just loves this juicy twist. Maureen alone is suspicious about the timing of this sudden revelation. She writes,
3: a drink of death. Will a jury send to prison a mother-to-be?
0: Belva knows she can't compete with Beulah's beauty, so she schemes to get their pictures taken together as often as possible. She also uses her husband's money to become the Rose's most stylish occupant, and even opens a sort of contraband cosmetics racket. A jury isn't blind, one of the inmates tells Maureen. And a pretty woman's never been convicted in Cook County. To that end, many inmates cut each other's hair and even give each other manicures. Friends and lawyers bring them different outfits, and they spend their afternoons conducting fashion shows. When the girl in cell number four was informed that her trial would be the following Tuesday, one of them said later, Belva gave her some really good ideas on costuming, coiffure, and general chic. It helped the girl in number four, and it whiled away otherwise lonely hours for Belva, with the clothes since. Belva clearly knows one thing. Getting free is a beauty contest as much as it is anything else. It turns out that lawyer Helen Cerise knows it too. She sets about giving her client, Sibella, a complete and total makeover. We simply reconditioned her, she says later. I got a
4: hairdresser to fix her up every day. We bought her a blue suit and a flesh-colored blouse. We taught her to speak English, and when she walked into that courtroom, she was beautiful, beautiful and innocent. I'll never
0: forget how she looked. You wouldn't have known her. Incredibly, in April 1924, Helen gets Sabella's verdict reversed. In June, she is released on bail and returns home to await retrial. But that retrial never happens. In December, the state drops the charges against her. Her cellmates watch with rapt attention and a building sense of hope. Beulah's trial comes before Belva's, taking place in late May. She is first called to stand without the jury, to determine if the midnight confession is even legal. Her lawyers argue that it's worthless, since she was drunk while she was interrogated. The judge, it turns out, agrees. Beulah, meanwhile, has turned up looking as fetching as ever.
1: The courtroom was full of appreciative smiles directed toward the lovely girl beside the prisoner's table,
0: one reporter says.
1: The pretty bob-haired maid assuredly was the fairest thing that had ever graced a murder trial in Chicago.
0: When Beulah takes the stand on the second day of the trial, crowds have gathered. The nation is obsessed with this case. Movie cameras are rolled into the back of the courtroom for theatrical newsreels, and fans rush to make it inside. Beulah once again tells her version of the story. She says that she and Harry drank, danced, and then she told him she was pregnant.
5: But he refused to believe me, and boasted that another woman had fooled him that way and that he had done time in the penitentiary for her. I said, you'll go back to that penitentiary if you don't leave me alone. He said, you'll never send me back there. And I said, I'll call my husband and he'll shoot us both. There's a gun in there. And I pointed to the bedroom. Where's the gun? He asked. Let's see it. Then we both started for the gun. He reached it first, but I wrenched it out of his hand. Then he came for me, brandishing his arms, and I seized him by the shoulder and spun him around. Then I shot.
0: The state tries to trip Eula up in cross-examination.
2: Had Calstead ever been to your home before this day? No. Had you been to any parties with him, or to any places of amusement? No, sir. How many drinks did you have, Miss Anand?
5: Three or four.
2: Have you been in the bedroom with him? No. Was the gun in plain sight on the bed? Yes. What time was it when you shot Harry Calstead?
5: About 2.30 or 3, I
0: think.
1: The witness made a favorable impression, the Evening
0: Post wrote.
1: Controlling her emotions, except during the dramatic cries of her recital.
0: The fact is this, Beulah is a married woman who shot her boyfriend. And yet somehow she appears as a timid girl and a victim, one who claims the moral high ground after all. But the state does its best to shatter that image woman who didn't want him there would have run out of the apartment and yelled for help. You have seen that face, gentlemen. The defendant is not the kind of woman men would tell to go to hell. She probably had never heard that before, and it angered her. The verdict is in your hands, and you must decide whether you will permit a woman to commit a crime and let her go just because she's good-looking. You must decide whether you want to let another pretty woman go out and say, I got away with it. Her defense's closing arguments reiterate that her confessions were bullied out of her by police while she was drunk. They paint a picture of a loving, virtuous wife who was slandered by the state and a drunken brute. Beulah begins to sob prettily. The jury comes back with a verdict after only two hours. Not guilty. Beulah goes on to pose for a photo with them all. As for Maureen, she simply can't believe it.
3: Men on a jury generously make allowance for a woman's weakness, both physical and moral. She is unduly influenced, led astray by some man, and not really responsible.
0: Poor little woman. Beulah, however, is free, and happy to play the lady who has learnt her lesson.
5: I'm going to be a devoted wife from now on,
0: she declared.
5: The most intense longing which I have is that I prove myself to be a good mother and a true wife. I want to show the whole world what kind of woman I really am.
0: But just days later, she adds to the drama by announcing that she is leaving her long-suffering husband.
5: He doesn't want me to have a good time. He never wants to go out anywhere, and he doesn't know how to dance. I want lights, music, and good times. I love to dance. I love good food. And I'm gonna have them.
0: It rather tarnishes her good-girl image with the papers. But it's Al who has the hardest time. Alone, heartbroken, and saddled with Beulah's many legal bills. I cannot make myself realize that Beulah has given me up, he tells reporters. When we married, we took solemn vows that it was for better or for worse, and that it was to exist until death parted us. Beulah's no different than any other woman. She's naturally weak and needs protection. She will come back to me. Newsflash, she doesn't. But don't feel too bad for him. Ten years after Beulah's acquittal, Al will be convicted of manslaughter for beating a woman to death during a drunken argument in their shared apartment. He won't call the police until three hours after she dies. In June of 1924, it is Belva's turn on the stand. She shows up to court looking gorgeous. Shops send her dresses to consider wearing to the courtroom, knowing the papers will describe them in detail.
3: Class, that was Belva,
0: Maureen writes later.
3: For she lived up to her reputation as the most stylish of murderesses' row. A blue twill suit bound with black braid and white lacy frill down the front, patent leather slippers with shimmering French heels, chiffon gunmetal hose, and a hat. <laughs> that hat. Helmet-shaped and with a silver buckle and a cockade of ribbon, with one streamer tied jauntily, coquettishly, bewitchingly under her chin.
0: Belva's lawyer doesn't even try to make an argument. He simply pokes holes in the States, which works. Maureen is irritated by Belva's calm throughout the proceedings.
3: Her sultry eyes never lost their dreaminess as policemen described the dead body slumped over the wheel of her Nash sedan. She writes, The matted hair around the wound, the blood that dripped in pools, and her revolver and fifth of gin lying on the floor. Her sensuous mouth kept its soft curves as they told finding her in her apartment. 4809 Forestville Avenue, with blood on coat, blood on her dress, of green velvet and silver cloth, and blood on silver slippers.
0: Maureen finds herself worrying that she hasn't been hard enough on Beulah in her coverage. She fears that she underestimated the woman and is somehow going to help her walk free. So when it comes to covering Belva's trial, Maureen pulls no punches. But it doesn't matter. The trial moves quickly, over just two days. This time, the jury takes seven hours to deliberate. When they pronounce the verdict, not guilty, Belva laughed and cried in one breath. Maureen cannot believe another murderess is walking free.
3: Belva Gartner. Another of those women who messed things up by adding a gun to her fondness for gin and men was acquitted last night at 12.10 o'clock at the murder of Walter Law. So drunk she didn't remember whether she shot the man found dead in her sedan at Forestville Avenue and 50th Street, March 12th. But after six and one half hours and eight ballots, the jury said, She didn't.
0: Regardless, Belva is once again a free woman. She will remarry her husband, William, in May 1925. But they aren't going to get there happily ever after. Belva will get drunk pretty much every night and embark on more affairs. When William confronts her, she hits him over the head with a mirror. In 1926, when William discovers a strange man in his bedroom, Belva screams that she will kill her husband. He has to run away and once again files for divorce. Belva tries to claim that William had an extreme and abnormal sex passion, but the press is not going to be swayed this time. One paper calls William the most patient soul since Job. And yet, when William dies decades later, he still leaves most of his estate to Belva. Oh, William. And what happened to Kitty Malm? She doesn't get free like the others. She serves the rest of her short life in prison. is cheerful and helpful and works as a clerk in the prison's main office. And yet, when Kitty tries for early release in 1930 and 1931, it fails both times. Eventually, she falls ill with pneumonia and dies in late December 1932. She is just 28 years old. Why do Belva and Beulah get off and Kitty doesn't? One reporter sums it up like this. Her mistake was in being hard-boiled and none too good-looking. A sad indictment of the times. Eventually, Maureen grows tired of police reporting. She turns to film criticism and light features instead. And then she goes back to her theater professor and her playwriting workshop. She already has an ambitious comedy mapped out, inspired by her time in crime reporting. She titles her play, The Brave Little Woman. But by the time she finished writing, it is simply called Chicago. Maureen's play is a satire filled with characters based on those she met in life. The two leads are Velma Kelly, who's based on Belva, and Roxy Hart, who's based on Beulah. But we see the likenesses of Kitty and Sabella, too. All of them are held up to Maureen's particular brand of jaded scrutiny. She wants to explore the criminal justice system through her work, the problems with sensational journalism, and the absolute stupidity of letting the prettiest and best-dressed murderesses walk free. Maureen tells the New York World that she...
3: Was betraying conditions as I actually found them during my newspaper work. For while the play may sound like burlesque or travesty in New York, it would pass for realism in its hometown.
0: This is an era where plays are being fined for their morality, or lack thereof. Police raid productions for corrupting the youth and drag whole casts off to the clink. So when Chicago opens in the Music Box Theater on December 30th, 1926, it ruffles more than a few feathers. One reporter calls it, a shocker unfit for human consumption. John Archer of the Yale Divinity School agrees, saying it is, entirely too vile for public performance. And yet Chicago is a smash hit with audiences in New York and is chosen as one of the best plays of the year. Soon enough, it opens in its namesake town. Belva Gertner and her lawyer show up for the premiere, obviously. And instead of being embarrassed at seeing her dirty laundry turned into theater, Belva has this to say.
4: Gee, this play's got our number, ain't it?
0: The silent movie version opens two days before Christmas in 1927. Years later, in 1942, Chicago will be remade as a talkie starring Ginger Rogers as Roxy, though the Hays Code means it has to be cleaned up a bit. Horrified by the changes, Maureen quits screenwriting and moves to Florida. She stops writing entirely and spends the rest of her life rejecting entreaties to turn Chicago into a musical. But when she passes away in 1969, her family will sell the rights, which is how we end up with a musical version of this drama by choreographer Bob Fosse. At least the man stays true to Maureen's cynicism, which I think she would appreciate. The musical will run for 936 performances, then return 20 years later to take the Tony for Best Revival of a Musical. In 2002, the musical will hit theaters and win the Academy Award for Best Picture. Beautiful, deadly, treacherous, maligned. For a while, the women of Murderesses Row enthralled America. They enchant us still with their tales of passion, violence, and of getting away with murder. Until next time. Thanks for listening. This episode wouldn't have been possible without the excellent book by Douglas Perry called The Girls of Murder City, Fame, Lust, and the Beautiful Killers Who Inspired Chicago. So if you're interested in hearing more about these real-life ladies, go and grab yourself a copy. Thanks, as always, to Carly Quinn for her huge help researching and writing this episode. If you like The Explorers, tell a friend about it, leave a review wherever you listen, become a patron of the show, go and grab some Explorers merchandise, or just shoot me a message telling me what you love about it. Hearing from you always delights me. You can find show notes, including a transcript of this episode, and lots of images at my website, theexplorerspodcast.com. You can also find me over on Instagram at The Explores Podcast. Much love to Mr. Explores for my theme song and logo, and to the following for their vocal stylings. Some of my patrons, Veronica, April, Jessica, Valerie, Colette, and Sierra, and also Blake Farha and my brother John.